Let's, let's go to God in prayer, though, this time to bring, um, bring our needs and our cares of, of this world before him uh, in prayer. Father in heaven, um, you who hold all things, you whom we can trust with all things, you who hold us fast by your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we lift these things up to you. Um, Father, we, we pray this morning for the nation of, of Chad, and, and we pray, Father, for the, the desperate need for the gospel to go out there for the word of your good news to be heard among so many. Especially, we pray, Father, for um, the nauseant efforts to to reach Muslims uh, living in the Saharan regions of Chad and um, those populations living between the capital and the Guerra Mountains that are nearly entirely Muslim and, and there's hardly any Christian presence and those efforts have really only just begun. Father, we pray that you would raise up workers and that you would spur on Christians, uh, though they be few in number in those areas, to be lights and to be witnesses to their neighbors, and would you bring gospel hope to those regions. We pray for the Bible translation projects going on in that nation to so many languages by organizations like Wycliffe, and, and pray that you would bring those to uh, fruition in short but due time. And we prep uh, pray, Father, for the, those evangelism efforts that are going on in the, in the capital, in uh, Unjamina, um, whether we're, we're truly a metropolitan area and the people are gathered from, from all of the, the different tribes and tongues and ethnic groups of, of Chad and, and the gospel can go out and, and they can take the gospel back home. Um, so we pray, Father, that that city would be a, a fruitful uh, locus of the gospel throughout the entire country. And we pray, Father, for uh, refugees from Darfur um, who have flocked to Chad and are maybe disillusioned with Islam and that they would come to a place that's a little freer, has a little bit more openness, a little bit more hope, and that they would hear the good news about Jesus and believe. And, and communities of Sudanese Christians would, would rise up there and maybe even bring the gospel back to Darfur. Father, we pray for the Balantaganja of Senegal. We pray that um, their leaders uh, who control the decision-making among that very unreached people would, would come to know Jesus Christ and, and so be influential in leading others to him. Uh, we pray for workers uh, in that very small pocket of people because there are no Christian workers. Pray that you would send out laborers and absent that, Father, we pray that you would bring the gospel to them through dreams, through visions, through whatever means necessary that you might grab a hold of them even as you grabbed a hold of the Apostle Paul. Father, we pray for those in our country who are recovering from tornadoes, and we pray for our, our missionaries that, that we support uh, through like organizations like Send Relief, working in places like Mississippi and Arkansas that, 
that they would, they would bring hope of the gospel and peace and shelter and calm um, through their relief efforts. So we pray for that practical help to be distributed well, to be distributed fairly, be distributed equitably, but we pray also for the hope of the gospel to be in the midst of that. We pray, Father, for cool heads and wisdom in our country as we uh, get news through the end of the week and over the weekend of uh, just some intense political and legal things that we know are going to cause social media to blow up. But Father, we pray that especially your church, your Christians, would be people of peace and would be people of uh, right-mindedness and cool-mindedness, knowing that our kingdom is not of this world, but it is centered on the King of kings who rules from heaven. We pray for those in our church, Father, who are dealing with hardships spoken and unspoken of so many sorts, financial, uh, economic, in the workplace, uh, disease, in family. You know them all. But we pray, Father, that those difficulties and those trials would be opportunities to show and display their weakness so to magnify the strength of Christ and make much of him. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Uh, turn with me uh, to 1 Samuel 26, or if you don't have a physical Bible, Swipe there, tap there, click there. Do what you do to get to 1 Samuel 26. We're finishing, we're rapidly closing in on the end of a series on 1 Samuel. And if you want to follow along, there are cards in the back of the table or the entryway that have a list of all the sermons that are coming up uh, through the summer and we'll be publishing a new one soon. But they are off by one week because even as pride comes before a fall, and I mentioned to a friend that I had never missed a sermon that I was supposed to preach in 16 years, and then I got sick. So we are off by one week, and you can just, you have to mentally adjust. But let's take a look at First uh, Samuel 26, and then we will, it helps if I tell you to turn there, that I do the same thing. Then the Ziphites came to Saul at Gebeah, saying, Is not David hiding himself on the hill of Hakalah, which is on the east of Yeshimon? So Saul arose and went down to the wilderness of Ziph with 3,000 chosen men of Israel to seek David in the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul encamped on the hill of Hakalah, which is beside the road on the east of Yeshimon. But David remained in the wilderness. When he saw that Saul had come after him into the wilderness, David sent out spies and learned that Saul had indeed come. Then David rose and came to the place where Saul had encamped. And David saw the place where Saul lay, with Abner, the son of Ner, the commander of his army. Saul was laying within the encampment while the army was encamped around him. Then David said to Ahimelech, the Hittite, and to Joab's brother, Abishai, the son of Zariah, who will go down with me into the camp of Saul? And Abishai said, I will go down with you. So David and Abishai went to, our, went to the army by night, and there lay Saul sleeping with the encampment, with his spear stuck in the ground at his head. And Abner and the army lay around him. Then Abishai said to David, 
God has given your enemy into your hand this day. Now, please, let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear, and I will not strike him twice. But David said to Abishai, do not destroy him. For who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? And David said, as the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him, or his day will come to die, or he will go down into battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. But take now the spear that is at his head and the jar of water and let us go. So David took the spear and the jar of water from Saul's head and they went away. No man saw it or knew it, nor did any awake, for they were all asleep because a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen upon them. Then David went over to the other side and stood far off from the on the uh, far off on the top of the hill with a great space between them. And David called to the army and to Abner, the son of Ner, saying, Will you not answer, Abner? Then Abner answered, Who are you who calls to the king? And David said to Abner, Are you not a man who is like you in Israel? Why then have you not kept watch over your lord the king? For one of the people came in to destroy the king, your lord. This thing that you have done is not good. As the Lord lives, you deserve to die because you have not kept watch over your Lord, the Lord's anointed. And now see where the king's spear is and the jar of water that was at his head. Saul recognized David's voice and said, Is this your voice, my son David? And David said, It's my voice, my Lord, O king. And he said, why does my Lord pursue after his servant? For what have I done? What evil is on my hands? Now, therefore, let my Lord, the king, hear the words of his servant. If it is the Lord who has stirred you up against me, may he accept an offering. But if it is men, may they be cursed before the Lord, for they have driven me out of this, driven me out this day that I should have no share in the heritage of the Lord, saying, go serve other gods. Now, therefore, let not my blood fall to the earth away from the presence of the Lord, for the king of Israel has come out to seek a single flea, like one who hunts a partridge in the mountains. Then Samuel said, I have sinned. Returned, my son David, for I will no more do you harm, because my life was precious in your eyes this day. Behold, I have acted foolishly and have made a great mistake. And David answered and said, Here is the spear, O king. Let one of the young men come over and take it. The Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. For the Lord gave you into my hand today, and I would not put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. Behold, as your life was precious this day in my sight, so may my life be precious in the sight of the Lord, and may he deliver me out of all tribulation. Then Saul said to David, Blessed be you, my son David. You will do many things and will succeed in them. So David went his way, and Saul returned to his place. They say uh, history does not repeat itself, but that it often rhymes. And, and we remember the United States has lost four presidents to assassination, and the first and the last were lost to sympathizers of the greatest threat to the American ideal of that day. Uh, Abraham Lincoln was murdered by a sympathizer of the Southern Confederate cause, John Wilkes Booth, and John F. Kennedy was murdered by a communist sympathizer. Each of Lincoln and K 
Kennedy, the first and last of our lost presidents, were shot at social events. Uh, Lincoln watching a play at the Ford Theater in D.C. Kennedy participating in an open car motorcade near Daly, Dealey Plaza in Dallas. Each president was seated next to his wife. Each was shot in the head. Each president was succeeded in office by a vice president named Johnson. Andrew Johnson in the case of Lincoln and Lyndon Baines in the case of Kennedy. With less dramatic flair, though, most of us have probably often frustratingly felt like we lived the moment we're in before. But the events aren't really repeats, are they? They're rhymes, the, the, the similarities. When we see the same mistakes that lead to the same bad results, or we see the same good decisions that lead to the same successes, those allow us to see patterns of wisdom and patterns of folly. But the differences matter too. The differences tell us about change. The differences tell us about growth. They also tell us about the unknowns. They, they point us to what we can't count on. Where the, path, where the past can't be a guide for future predictions. You know, we're so fascinated by how history repeats itself that we want everything to be about similarities. So, so every political scandal today ends in gate because we want it to be some sort of ode to the Watergate scandal. And, and, and we say it's just like that time when. And, and when we do that, we rob ourselves of seeing the differences that push us to learn and grow and to be challenged. 1 Samuel 26 is one of those episodes of history that rhymes. It has striking similarities with the events of chapter 24. But the differences are important. David has changed. David has grown. So I want to look at some of these repeats between 26 and 24, but also where, where more of it rhymes than it repeats. And so we we'll go back and forth between these repeats and these rhymes to see how God is speaking to us through 1 Samuel 26 this morning. And in the end, I think we'll pull away three applications from this passage. The passage begins with a very similar scenario that brings to mind the events of chapters 23, the end of 23, and then into 24. We've got residents of the town of Ziph who go to Saul. They tell him that they have some inside information that David was living nearby. Back then, they found David, quote, hiding among us in the strongholds of Horesh on the hill of Hakalah, which is south of Yeshimon. Now, sometime later in chapter 26, they've uncovered David's whereabouts again, and once more they tell Saul, explaining that he's hiding himself on the hill of Hakalah, which is on the east of Yeshimon, so maybe a little different portion of that hill. And while there are many places, and we mentioned this before, while there are many places in the book that we can identify with confidence, and many others that we have a good idea of the general location, we really only have a very rough idea about Yeshimon and Hakalah. But David is still hiding out in this wilderness or the desert region of southern Israel between towns like Ziph and Moan and Carmel to the west and the Dead Sea to the east. More like his pursuit of David in chapter 24, though, Saul once again pursues David, his fugitive son-in-law, with 3,000 chosen men of Israel, 
Once again, Saul is bringing five to one odds. David had an army of about 600 men. And he's bringing this overwhelming military force to capture or to kill David. And once again, he gets extremely close. His intel is very, very good. But just as we're beginning to think that history is repeating itself, if we're paying attention, we realize it's just a rhyme. It's a, it's a key change. Because as we look at the back half of verse 3, down through verse 5, we see that David is in a very different position. David sends out spies to confirm what he has observed. And they report back that it is Saul who has come with an army in tow into the desert. Probably, though, or probably through the spies, they are able to scope out Saul's encampment, recognize uh, the commander, Abner, is with him. David's military infrastructure seems to be much more competent and much more precise than in the preceding chapters. Remember the last time that Saul went hunting David, he accidentally stumbled upon the cave that David was hiding in when he went to use the restroom. And the time before that, Saul nearly trapped David and his men against a rocky peak in the Judean desert. But this time, David is aware of Saul well before Saul is aware of him. And instead of waiting for Saul to come and look for him, or look for a place to do his business, David takes action. David speaks to two of his men to ask which of them are going to be joining him for a little visit in Saul's camp. And both men are interesting for different reasons. The second man, his name is Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, and brother of a guy named Joab. And you might be thinking, that's odd because I don't know anything about who these people are. In fact, if you were reading the book straight through before you came here this morning, you might think, I really don't know who these guys are. But the author expects that you do, or soon will, because if you know the history of Israel, both of these guys become very important advisors and military figures when David eventually becomes king. Ahimelech, on the other hand, never mentioned again. But what's interesting about him is that he's a Hittite. He's not an Israelite. He's a pagan from the Northwest. You see, it's, it's not just ethnic Jews who are interested in David and what God is doing through him. Long before David, God had promised the ancestor of all the ethnic Jews, a, a man named Abraham, that in his offspring, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And God was showing hints of that promise coming true. But it was Abishai who agreed to go with David, and so they went. And maybe there's another rhyme there. Maybe you were with us and you can remember back to chapter 14. Maybe you know the story anyway. When, when Saul's own son, Jonathan, stepped out on faith to confront an encroaching Philistine army. Just him and one other man, his armor bearer. But more of it was a, a rhyme than repeat because 
Although Jonathan, who was arguably David's closest friend, he was anything but subtle, anything but stealthy. He was looking for a fight, and he got one. David and Abishai, like master spies, like ninjas, they enter a 3,000-man armed camp completely undetected. It's a credit to them. And that's unlike chapter 24 or anything that has come before. This time, rather than waiting back or being passive or moving away from Saul, David is the man of action and moving toward him. And then, history starts to repeat again. When Saul entered the cave in chapter 24, David's men were absolutely convinced that God was giving David an opportunity to end his running, to end all of their runnings. After all, they were a bunch of vagabonds. They were outcasts who had left desperate situations to join David. And it's likely that Saul was at least indirectly responsible for many of their hardships. And with one stroke, David could kill Saul and it would all be over. And now, one more time, one of David's trusted soldiers eggs him on. And so Abishai says to him, God has given your enemy into your hand this day. Now please let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear and I will not strike him twice. And there's really three pulls, I think, to this temptation. The first pull, the first thing that makes this temptation strong is this idea that David can get even. He can have vengeance. He can get rid of his enemy and settle a score. The second, the second pull is that Abishai is coming very close to saying, God wants you to do this, David. And that's a tough one. Because if you believe in God, if you want to be faithful to God, then the idea that God wants you to do something and that you'd be unfaithful to not do it, that can be a real tug on your heart. It's sort of like if someone says, you know, it's what your mom would have wanted. Or you'd, you'd make your grandfather proud. And there's nothing wrong with it per se if it's rooted in the truth and in good intentions, but when it's a ploy or wishful thinking, then that's dangerous or that's cruel. Here's the third thing that makes this tempting. Abishai is telling David that he can settle the score. He's telling David it's what God wants. And he's telling David he can get away with it. I think that's what he's saying when he's asking David to let him do it. He's convinced that he's a skilled enough soldier that he can take Saul's own spear and kill him with one quick stroke. No one in this camp has to wake up. There doesn't have to be a commotion. There doesn't have to be a yell. There doesn't have to be a scream. One strike, it's done. I'm a pro, is what he's saying. And then we can go. 
Temptation isn't much of a temptation if we don't want what we're being tempted with, is it? James, the brother of Jesus, would one day write to fellow Christians, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. The bottom line is that on some level, we always do what we want to do, don't we? All of us, always. I mean, take the most extreme example. I mean, you can uh, put a gun to my head and tell me I, I have to rob a bank, and, and I might rob a bank. I don't know what I'd do in that situation. But if I do, it'll be because I will have wanted my life more than I wanted to not rob the bank. It's still a matter of choice, very limited, very narrow choices, very, admittedly not very good choices. We may have limited options sometimes, but within those options we make choices. And so the way out of temptation is to not desire what we're being tempted with. That's one possibility, but that's not always possible. It's impossible to kill all desire altogether. So the more successful path, the other way that we fight temptation, the way we get out of temptation, is to desire something else so much more that it overwhelms every other option. Like that one flavor at Mitchell's ice cream that you just have to have. You know that they're all good, but you keep going back for that one because it's just that good. And why would you waste time on another flavor when you've got that one? Chapter 25 taught us that David is not a perfect man. He can be vengeful. So he's almost certainly feeling this temptation to take some revenge on Saul. But he overcomes it by having a much greater desire. See if you can hear what it is. Do not destroy him. For who can put his hand against the Lord's anointed? and be held guiltless. As the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him, or his day will come to die, or he will go down into battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. David's love and respect for the Lord is too great to allow him to bring harm on Saul. Because Saul, with all of his faults, and all of his faithlessness was still the man that God had anointed to be king over Israel. And so David viewed an attack on Saul as an attack on God himself. And if God wanted Saul there, then God would bring down Saul in his time. David's desire for God 
was greater than his desire for freedom. It was greater than his desire to be king. And it was greater than his desire for revenge. If you want to fight sin and evil in your life, the king in your life has to be bigger bigger than the one that is in your heart. You need a king who sits enthroned in heaven. You need a desire that is bigger than the desires that are in here. David lived a hard life up to this point. So did Charles Albert Tindley. Charles Albert Tindley wrote well of the hope in a king who sits enthroned in heaven, the son of a slave and and a free woman without any formal education. Uh, He learned to read on his own and he learned uh, biblical Hebrew and biblical Greek, uh, eventually becoming an ordained pastor. But, But perhaps his most lasting mark in culture has been his music, which shaped both the American church culture as well as popular culture. And despite being no doubt familiar with the evils of the world, having seen the horrors of slavery and then the rise of fascism, he put pen to his hope in the song Beams of Heaven this way. Harder yet may be the fight. Right may often yield to might. Wickedness a while may reign. Satan's cause may seem to gain. But there's a God that rules above with hand of power and heart of love. And if I'm right, he'll fight my battle. I shall have peace someday. Burdens now may crush me down, disappointments all around. Troubles speak in mournful sigh, sorrow through a tear-stained eye. There is a world where pleasure reigns. No mourning soul shall roam its plain. And to that land of peace and glory, I want to go. Someday. Tindley had a hope that was greater than the evils that he was seeing and the temptations to fight them with worldly means. David had such a hope. Well, in this way, David is quite in line with his attitude in chapter 24. Because in that place, too, he absolutely refused the temptation of his men to take Saul's life. Absolutely refused. But then what comes next, again, is is more rhyme than repeat. 
yeah, David takes something from Saul. You might remember that in chapter 24, while Saul was doing his business in the cave, David cuts off a piece of his royal robe, and he uses it as evidence that he could have taken Saul's life but didn't. It was proof of his loyalty and his innocence. And here David does something similar. He takes Saul's spear and water jug, which he'll use in much the same way. But there's a difference. When David cuts off a part of Saul's robe, it makes him feel guilty. For reasons we can't fully appreciate because of thousands of years and cultural differences, there was something about cutting a piece of the robe that was so closely tied to the idea of kingship and to the person of the king, of Saul himself, that, that cutting that robe felt like an attack on Saul himself and so felt like an attack on God to David, and he felt guilty. But he has no guilty conscience at all about this action. Maybe it's because the symbolism is different. Maybe it's because of what he's able to do at the end of this passage, which we'll come to. But, but Saul's spear was a, a symbol of his power and his might. Ancient kings of this region uh, are often depicted in artwork as having a favorite weapon. And Saul has been carrying this spear with him throughout the book of 1 Samuel. Uh, or when he's not carrying it, he's throwing it at people he hates. It's very clearly closely connected to him as a person, a symbol of war and violence and death and power. In fact, it was used on many occasions against David himself. Taking it left Saul in all of his royal garb, but without any show of phony power. And by taking the instrument that had once been used to almost take his life, it was like David was taking his life back from Saul. And, and the water jug was, was, was just what it sounds like, but I'm inclined to agree with scholars who see it as a symbol of life. Particularly, remember, this is all taking place in the harsh Judean desert. And so David took a symbol of death and a symbol of life from Saul. And so maybe there's a message in the fact that at the end of our passage, David offers the spear of death back to Saul, but not the water jug of life. There's another difference here, though. When David is away from Saul, he doesn't call out after Saul this time. He calls out for the commander of Saul's army, Abner. It was Abner's responsibility to protect King Saul, and Abner had failed. Abner had let two enemies, at least they were enemies from his point of view, from Saul's point of view, to come into the camp and steal from the king. They could have easily killed Saul if they had chosen to. Abner had failed in his duties, and David calls him out. Besides responding uh, merely, who are you who calls to the king, is really the only thing we, we hear from Abner. He doesn't even seem to be aware of anything that has happened. Abner really doesn't answer. Probably for the best, because it seems like it's actually Saul that David wants to talk to. 
Because he then maybe finally being woken from his slumber in the early morning light recognizes the voice and we, and we gather that's exactly what David wanted. And David wants an answer from Saul. He's frustrated. He says, why does my Lord pursue after his servant? Again, we see David continuing to use this language of humility even after all they've been through all the times that Saul has hunted him and tried to kill him, he considers himself like Saul's slave. For what have I done? What evil is on my hands? Now, therefore, let my Lord, the king, hear the word of his servant. If the Lord has stirred you up against me, may he accept an offering. But if it is men, may they be cursed before the Lord. David wants to know why Saul is so maniacally pursuing him. David can see no reason. And so David imagines it's one of two things. Either God himself has put Saul up to it, or Saul has bad advisors who put him up to it. Now that first option sounds pretty odd, right? Why would God want Saul to pursue David? And I think David's meaning is this. There are sometimes points where we turn so hard against God that God may incite us to commit evil to bring about his good, idea, his good ends. Now, that, that might seem like a radical idea, but that's already happened in Saul's life. God sent Saul an evil-causing uh, mischievous-causing spirit to trouble him. God hardened the king of Egypt's heart, Pharaoh's heart, in order to bring about the salvation of the Israelites. Later in David's own life, God would even use a spirit to incite David to commit an evil after David's ego got a little too big. When we turn our back on God, he may give us more of what we think we want to our own destruction. Sometimes to bring us to repentance. Sometimes to harden us. And what I think David is saying, I think he's begging Saul to do, is to offer a sacrifice and to get right with God instead of pursuing him. After all, no matter how far he's gone, no matter what he's done, God is, as he revealed himself to Moses, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. There was hope still for Saul. And David is pleading with Saul. If God has incited you to this evil because you've turned your back on him, return to God. Repent. On the other hand, if it was bad advisors, if it was bad men, then David calls to them to be cursed by God because they have basically turned him into a pagan it, it, that's essentially what David is saying. 
they have made him like an unbeliever. The, the Israelites were called to serve God and worship him at a central sanctuary, this tabernacle, this roving thing before, before there was a temple. And, and they were supposed to do that in the land where he placed them. But by making David an outlaw and a, and a fugitive and preventing him from celebrating in the pilgrimages required by the law, things like Passover and Shavuot and Sukkoth, it was like he was no longer a part of God's people because of what these hypothetical men were convincing Saul to do. And for what? He had done no wrong. Like in chapter 24, Saul responds with some degree of remorse, although he's a lot stronger here. He flatly says, I have sinned. He calls his actions a mistake, foolish, and he asks David to return to him, promising David no more harm. But it's a promise that David absolutely does not believe. How do we know that? Well, if you look at the top of chapter 27, the very next thing we read is, then David said in his heart, now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than that I should escape the land of the Philistines. Now, that needs a look, but that's for next week. But the key for now is that David obviously does not believe a single word that Saul says. In fact, he seems more convinced than ever before that Saul will stop at nothing to kill him despite the words coming out of his mouth. And so he leaves Saul with this. He can come send a man to have his spear back. And maybe that's why David felt a little differently about the spear than about the robe. The spear could be had back in one piece, and the robe was permanently damaged. And David wishes only that God would treat him as well as he had treated Saul if God would only treat him just that good. Not that great, just, just as well as he had treated Saul. It would be good enough for him. And Saul, whether sincerely or not, we don't know, he blesses David. But he speaks truer than he knows. Blessed be you, my son David, you will do many things and will succeed in them. It's the last time these two men ever see each other, the last time these two men ever speak, and it's the last words that bear between them, and they're a blessing. It might not be a heartfelt one, but it's a blessing. So there are resemblances here, and there's repeats here, and there are rhymes here. What should we take away? Well, first of all, and, and we, we looked in this uh, a little bit worse. I won't spend time here. Three, three applications. One, David trusted in God to be just and to be his protector, as we saw. Of course, that was a theme of chapter 24, and to some degree it was a theme of chapter 25, that vengeance belongs to God, that we do not need to fight our own battles because there is, if we are faithful, one who fights our battles for us. We can lay down our 
weapons. We can lay down our arms because there is a God in heaven who is bringing the whole course of history to just ends. We can trust that those ends are certain and that they will be good. And when we believe that, there is a peace in that that allows us to lay down our fight. We can lay down our fight. But I won't belabor that because I've said something already and it's come up the last couple weeks. I think a second thing that we need to pull from this passage, though in this repeating and this rhyme pattern, is that for those who wish to follow God and who wish to follow Christ, temptations keep coming. David had the opportunity to kill Saul in 24. He had the opportunity to kill Saul again in chapter 26. And sandwiched between those was the desire that he almost executed to kill Nabal in chapter 25. In fact, he would have killed Nabal in chapter 25 if not for the intervention of the wise and the courageous and the intelligent Abigail. And I think that there is a, a temptation among those of us of faith uh, in our pursuit of Christ that we maybe have a victory over sin. We maybe have a victory over temptation. And we think that we've gotten through to the other side and we pat ourselves on the back and then we think, aha, no more, I've beat it, I'm done with that. I'm not greedy anymore. I'm not lustful anymore. I don't do that anymore. I, 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 don't, I don't rack up tons and tons of debt anymore in my desire for stuff. I, I, don't, I don't look at uh, porn anymore. Uh, I, I'm done with that. I, I beat that last week. You know, I, I don't get drunk every Friday night anymore. I'm, I'm done with that. Uh, that, that lifestyle, I'm, I, I'm done with. Uh, I don't respond out of spite toward people anymore because right? I, I was thinking about it. I was thinking about responding with spite last week, and I didn't, and whew, God save me. Good. And then, but what happens? The enemy will keep attacking. David is confronted with, with the opportunity to kill Saul. Then he's, he's, then he's deeply, deeply offended by the actions of Nabal and given the opportunity to kill him. Nearly takes it. And then right on the heels of that, he's given another opportunity, an even better opportunity, an even stronger temptation to, king, to kill Saul. Victory today does not ensure victory tomorrow. Christians must be vigilant against the enemy's attacks. Temptation is going to keep coming. So again, maybe to repeat myself a little bit, unless you have that desire that is greater than your other desires and you hold fast to that desire, you are going to be in a constant 
struggle against, uh, you're going to feel like you're, you're facing a losing, constant losing battle against sin and temptation. Now, are you going to sin? Of course you're going to sin. Uh, as Andrew reminded us a couple weeks ago, anyone who claims to be without sin is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Those were the words of John in his short letter in the New Testament. But if it feels like you are constantly battling sin and constantly losing, could it be that you don't desire something big enough? Because you have to have a desire that is a stronger pull than what this world has to offer. And the only desire that I have found that always works for any situation, for any circumstance, is an eternal one, a heavenly one, a king who is seated on the throne. If my desire is for a master in heaven named Jesus Christ, that that is a desire that can overwhelm any desire I have for anything on earth. Doesn't mean that I don't still stumble, doesn't mean I don't still fall, but it is the only thing I have found that is ultimately satisfying against the greatest desires and temptations here on earth. And so if we want to have victory here, we need to continually lean on the victory that he, Christ, has already won. He has already defeated sin. And by leaning into his victory, there is hope for our victory. But we have to be vigilant. We have to be vigilant. The attacks are going to keep coming. Third, there's a balance between love and wisdom among the faithful. Here's what I mean. David's love held out hope that Saul, even Saul, could return to God. Christ's mercy was great enough for the biggest sinners. Even though, however, Saul said he would change, David didn't believe him. And that's where wisdom comes in. There's a temptation for many of us. Uh, we want to be so full of love that we confuse love with being a doormat. And love is not being a doormat. And there's a temptation to confuse wisdom with cynicism. Wisdom is not cynicism. Love believes all things, is what Paul taught us in 1 Corinthians 13. You've heard it at half the weddings you've been at. That means nothing else. It means David believed that even Saul could be redeemed. Even Saul could find forgiveness in Christ. 
wisdom taught him not to trust him. And there's a difference between those two things. Now, if time and circumstance and proven change took place, that's one thing. But wisdom taught David to part ways. Sometimes wisdom demands that we part ways even when love hopes all things, even when love hopes for better. Now, there are times when walking away is impossible because of circumstances or a greater moral duty. But some relationships are destructive. And sometimes we are tempted to return to absolutely destructive relationships out of a misguided sense of love. The love is good, but the direction of the love is sometimes in error. Our belief, our faith, should be directed where? Toward Christ. When Paul said love believes all things, he doesn't mean love believes all the things that Satan spews forth from his mouth. What type of belief is he speaking of? He's speaking of the faith that's centered in Christ himself. That it believes all the things that Christ is and that Christ promises and that Christ claims. And if we believe that, then we believe that there is no one, there is no Saul who is beyond the reach of Christ's redemptive love. But the wisdom of Christ allows us to know that not every battle is ours to fight. The balance of love and wisdom is one that many of us in following Christ have failed to hold well and caused much pain in our hearts as a result. But we can walk it well. These differences, I think, between 26 and 24 are part of the ways that these passages rhyme rather than repeat, and they push us toward these important lessons that we need to take home. Let's pray. Uh, Father, um, you say that all these things, all these stories were written for our instruction and our example. Would, would you by your Spirit Teach us the wisdom that we need to follow Christ well. To continue to allow Jesus to bend history toward his perfect justice when every knee will bow and when he puts down the king's 
of this earth. And Father, would you give us the strength by your Spirit to continually be vigilant against temptations as they come, that we might be ready on the day of temptation because our desire will be in heaven and our heart will be tied to the heart of Jesus Christ. And so in the moment of temptation, we will be able to stand up under it. And Father, by your Spirit, help us to balance our desire to love well those who hurt us with our need to wisely protect ourselves and others from their danger. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, let's continue to sing praises uh, to this God who rules over all.